The Buy Now, Pay Later model, or BNPL, is traditionally a business-to-consumer model that is gaining traction in the business-to-business domain. Adoption of BNPL in business-to-business scenarios offers benefits like improved cash flow management for buyers and increased sale for suppliers, often leading to higher order value. However, this model introduces complexities, including the need for advanced technical platforms for managing such transactions. There are also risks associated with delayed or defaulted payments and potential accumulation of interest and fees. As business-to-business entities consider BNPL, they must strike a balance between its potential advantages and its inherent risks and operational challenges. Tranche is a London-based startup that is focused on providing a payments checkout platform for businesses that want to pay easier and get paid faster. Sohil Panya is the head of engineering at Tranche, and he joins us in this episode. Powell is a tech lead and a software engineer with a background in launching products in startups and big companies. He's also the founder of Flat Social. Check out the show notes to follow Powell on Twitter or LinkedIn, or visit his personal website, powell.io. Hi, Sohil. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Powell. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So let's start with the first question. What is Tranche and what do you guys do? Hey everyone, I'm Sohil Pandya. I'm head of engineering here at Tranche. We're a B2B payments platform and we enable businesses to get paid faster and easier uh, with our pay now and pay later checkouts. We tend to work in the services businesses and this can range from anywhere from global law firms to uh, marketing agencies. So yeah, that's what we do at Tranche. And how did you, Sohil, get into the programming and what were your first steps in the software world? Uh, yeah, so I probably have a slightly different background to some of the other guests that you may have on the podcast. Um, I didn't go through the uh, computer science background that uh, you know you generally have to go through, do an engineering degree, and then you know follow the path and the passion that you have. Um, my passion was cricket, uh, which is a, a sport, and I tried to um, play that at the highest level. Unfortunately, I wasn't good enough to play at the highest level. So in the late 2000s, I basically started to explore what I wanted to do, what I enjoyed. And I've always kind of enjoyed tech um, as a subject, you know, tinkering with things uh, when I was young. So, uh, yeah, I kind of looked into what options I had if I wanted to uh, have a career in uh, the software industry. Um, And back in the day, it was the late 2000s. There weren't as many resources for people when they were just starting out. Free code camp didn't exist. You know, people nowadays have a you know, fantastic array of things they can do to try and upskill themselves. Um, that wasn't there early on. So I, I think I remember doing the CS50 course back, I think in 2012 or something. It was the first one ever. And I was just amazed by it. And I loved every second of it. Um, but the one thing I really missed was the interaction. Uh, because, you know, when you do things online, everything is by yourself. You have to have the dedication um, and... Uh, to just keep on going a lot of online courses are also quite repetitive so sometimes the drive is missing so what i found here in london is a coding boot camp called the founders and coders which uh, back in the day when i when i did it in 2014 was a pretty new concept here in london there were a few a lot of them charging a lot of money which i just didn't have uh, <laughs> so you know i looked around see what the best 
course of action was for me to try and get into the industry. And that's how I broke broke into the industry. I did a boot camp uh, back in 2014 and then started working uh, as a freelancer. I did contracting. I worked, uh, you know, in the charity sector, consultancy and tech for good sector. That was kind of what was around there to kind of grow my experience and engineering experience. Um, I then moved on to Pizza Hut uh, and worked there at, at a fantastic couple of years working with some excellent engineers and just the whole team was fantastic. It was the digital division of uh, Pizza Hut and it was fantastic to kind of work with some great minds. Um, and then I moved on to uh, a mortgage startup called um, Trussell, which was later acquired by Better, uh, which is an American uh, version of that. Um, so yeah, that's how kind of started and kind of developed myself and ended up here at Tranche. And what's the story of you starting with Tranche? How, where did the idea come from and how did the team form itself? Well, I'd like to take all the credit for the idea. <laughs> but um, I actually met the two co-founders at my previous company, uh, Trussell, which I already mentioned. Um, so Bo was uh, the uh, Bo was my manager at uh, Trussell, and we worked closely on a lot of projects and 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 features that were kind of being shipped out at that company, and that's where we build a good rapport and a relationship. And Philip was a CFO at uh, Trussell, so um, although we didn't have as as much of a, a um, you know interaction as me and Bo did. Uh, we definitely had a few conversations in, in our tenure there. So um, that's where I first met them. And when they both decided to start something, um, they were like, hey, Sohil, we've got this idea. Um, do you want to come and join us? Um, and I was really excited by it. I, you know, enjoyed working with both of them before. Um, so I snatched their hand off. So that was, um, that was back in uh, 2021. Um, the pandemic has got my ears my ears mixed up, so I have to be very careful uh, with getting the right year. So that's when we started. So they started in October twenty twenty one. I joined. I was a first employee. I joined them very early on, uh, and I have been there. Uh, you could say almost from day one. Um, and since then, we've um, you know built a product. We've gone through uh, Y Combinator as well um, in the summer 2022 batch. so that was a fantastic experience for us as well. Um, we've launched our first product and we're, we've continued launching and we're just, uh, growing from there really. And you are currently a head of engineering at Trench. So I was wondering what is your role as a head of engineering and how is it different than being a CTO? Um, so really good question. Um, you know, we, we started out quite early on. So like I've already mentioned, I was there from probably day one. Um, and when you were there from day one, you have to sell, you have to code, you have to mentor, you have to architect some code, you have to work on the roadmap and strategy. You have to evaluate what partnerships you want to make uh, strategically. Everything you can imagine under the sun, I have been involved in from day one. And for some people that's quite daunting uh, but for, for me, it's re really exciting and, you know, you don't really get an opportunity to do a lot of these things when you're working in a big corporate or even a slightly bigger scale up, because all of those things have already been, uh, they're already there. You just have to go in and then, you know, you can get involved, but maybe not to the same standard that you can at a very early stage startup. 
So um, it's very exciting to to get to do all of these things. Um, but primarily, obviously, I'm hired to build a product. Uh, and we started with zero lines of code. And, you know, coming up, coming up with a vision is quite a daunting task, you know. So we've got to set out the technical strategy. We've got to have some kind of coding standards that we want to follow whilst we're building and and then focus on execution. You know, our, our goal is execute, 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 and make sure that we're delivering the best product that we can. Um, we grew the engineering team to five people. So you've got to do all of the execution and building, but then you've also got to grow the team, mentor the team, uh, both technically and culturally, because it's very important to do both. Um, but I'm very proud of, you know, the team that we have right now. Um, like I've mentioned already, I don't think you've heard me say execution. <laughs> you know, it, it's very important for us. Uh, so, you know, if you, even if you go to tranche.com, uh, you will see some really intricate containers. And I'm proud to say that all of the CSS has been, you know, it's just pure CSS. It's all responsive. And I wish I could tell you that I coded all of that. I didn't. Uh, my my team members did, and and I'm very proud of that. Like so, so we have like this, uh, this ethos, uh, and we just want to try and make sure that everyone on the team is is able to do uh, what they want to do and and deliver. Mm -hmm. So as a head of engineering, you'll be also more involved, for example, in hiring the the and then a CTO, and more into kind of the standards direction, maybe. Yeah. So I think me and uh, me and Bo, my CTO, work very closely together. Um, you know, um, one of the things that YC always uh, tries to, uh, one of their ethos of, uh, for startups is that the founders really should be involved in the day-to-day -day issues. And if you're an, if you have an engineering background, you should really be coding. So Bo really takes that uh, to heart and, you know, he's involved in all the daily decisions and, and we, we tend to make decisions together, uh, whether it's um, a technical decision, it's a hiring decision, um, uh, or, or it's a partnership decision, whatever it is that we need to do in order to grow the business, we, we tend to do together, um, which is great for me because, um, you know, I have someone who has more experience than me making sure that we're making the right decisions. Um, so it's always good to have someone you can talk to about these things as well. So that's how I see it. And from the, as an, as an engineer going through the, and through the Y Combinator program, wondering how did Y Combinator, apart from obviously affecting the business model a lot, most probably, how did they affect the technical decision that you made? How did, how did it all work together? Let's focus just on the engineering side. I think we aimed to deliver features or products on a weekly basis. Um, shipping was key. Getting things in front of customers is key. Um, and then whether it fails is all depending on the end customer. Um, you know, you, the idea is to get things out in front of people so that they're the ones who make the decisions, not you and I, um, because sometimes engineers aren't known for making the best decision for their customers. Um, so uh, that's the ethos, uh, not just for the business side, for the engineering side as well. Um, but you've got to work your butt off, um, excuse my language, you've got to work your butt off, um, make sure you're delivering, uh, you know, um, features or product that people really want to actually interact with and use and hopefully that makes you money mm. and from the point of view of the features that you decide to build which and how do you decide which features you're going to build next and how did you um with collaboration with the business how did you agree on the technical roadmap 
So the um, the roadmap usually we have um, a quarterly meeting between you know uh, the the heads off and 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 me and Bo and Philip would get together. We have a, a good idea of what the product, what direction the product needs to, to go in. Uh, you know, like I've said already, um, our vision is to become the uh, you know the best uh, pay now and pay later checkout. But the vision is to provide the best experience to everyone. So that's uh, that's always at the top of our mind. That's always our goal. We want to achieve that. Um, so we try and break it down into what can we get out in front of customers at every stage. Um, so whether it's a, a feature like, give you an example, uh, pay now, it's a feature where it will enable uh, customers to be able to pay their invoices um, straight away. And that's something uh, that is an addition to our existing pay later uh, pipeline as well. Uh, so that's a new feature that we've got to build. Technically, there's a lot of work involved. You know, you've got to think about, okay, how are we going to figure out um, whether the person who's entered the bank details are correct? How do we verify those? How are we going to make the payments? Are we going to integrate with the third-party payments platform? Who's then going to make that? Are we going to do that here in the UK or US? We're primarily a US. Uh, we're a US company. Uh, majority of our uh, clients are in the US, so should we focus in the US or the UK? So these are all, I guess, uh, questions that lead to lead us down um, building something which we eventually get down in front of the users. Um, so you've got to try and narrow the scope down so that you can try and get a, a fully end-to-end -end feature delivered in as short an amount of time as possible so that you have a quicker feedback loop. Because if the if the users are, get it, if we get it in front of the users, they're going to be able to use it. The user will be able to collect feedback. If they don't use it, we can then question why they're not using it. So there's always the life cycle of the product. You try to keep the kind of the feedback loop. Absolutely, 100%. Because it also makes you much faster with making any kind of decisions that you need to make quickly. And as a startup, obviously, those decisions, the earlier you take them, the better it is, especially if they're led by the and by user feedback. Let's speak a little bit about your tech stack. So. How did you build Trench? What kind of technology are you using? And what's behind the entire system? So we are a uh, primarily a TypeScript house. Um, and we are a full stack JavaScript um, platform um, where we use React is something that we use in the front end. Um, and then we use Node in the back end. We use Fastify as, uh, as the wrapper on top of Node. In terms of um, all of it, again, TypeScript. Uh, we've got um, Postgres DB, so we've got a, a relational database. And um, on top of all of this, it's all Dockerized, so that if, you, let's say, you were to join us, Powell, uh, for uh, for the role that we're hiring, we can, um, you know, get you set up on your laptop within five minutes because it's just a doc compose. Thank you very much, and 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 you're up and running on your machine very quickly. Um, so that's, I guess, the the platform in terms of our, our infrastructure. Uh, we use uh, DigitalOcean's plat app platform. Um, so we're using DigitalOcean um, for our um, single page React app. We have a server running for our API, and then we have um, a couple of different servers running, actually. So it's uh, technically a monorepo, which houses all of the code. Uh, and then we just deploy all of that um, to, uh, to DigitalOcean. We also have um, a one-to-one -one staging production so we kind of uh, are, we believe in 
our engineers owning the code end-to-end -end, uh, and that's from the moment they pick it up to deliver it uh, it is uh, you know within their remit to make sure everything is as expected because as soon as they click merge on github uh, it's going to go to production uh, so you know it's a uh, it can be daunting for some people but um, it also means that we have you know the right kind of attitude towards testing and making whether it's you know uh, whether it's actually testing the code or manual testing either way you know we make sure that we build that into our engineers so you mentioned that uh, you are using as per as per your instru as your uh, within your infrastructure as your cloud provider you use digital ocean and could you speak a little bit more about how did you choose the digital ocean what what are the reasons because it's obviously not the largest cloud provider i'm personally a fan but uh, what kind of led you to using the and digital ocean what what was your kind of decision process in the world of startup speed is key and as a very small team it is very important for us to not spend a lot of time on the infrastructure side of things we want to use a platform that makes it pretty easy for us to get up and running whilst also provide us the scale that we might need to grow for the next couple of years we all know that that is you know digital ocean isn't where we'll end up in the long run we'll probably use aws but the cost of actually using aws from day one um is a detraction uh, distraction because the every day or every hour that we, we are spending doing infrastructure we're not doing building product and um, at the earliest stage uh, in order to find a product market fit you've got to have a product and so I'd rather everyone in the engineering team is focused on building something valuable to the end user. And how did you find working with the Digital's Ocean uh, app platform? So actually, it's it's been pretty good for us. Um, you know, but in terms of the cost, it's it's pretty reasonable, um, and it gives us um, you know it has coverage across the U.S. market and the EU market, which is the two markets that we're. UK market, I should clarify that we're in. Um, so we can deploy our platforms in both of those locations. Um, they have the 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 platform, the GUI is pretty straightforward and, and pretty, uh, you know, intuitive to use. Um, so I find that pretty, pretty good and valuable because it means that even if we're training up our junior engineers, we can actually get them onto the platform and, and actually show them how we get a, a database up and running, how we get the, you know, the the service going or the single page react app up on on the apps platform whereas i wouldn't in a hundred years want my junior engineer to go onto aws because that can cause all sorts of trouble um and we just don't want that mm -hmm. no it makes absolute sense and i was wondering from the point of view of any specific technology choices or architectural choices did you do any interesting architectural or technology choices with tranche that you would like to highlight so um i think i would like to probably uh, I've, i think i've already mentioned the css shapes i would really recommend people go to tranche.com and 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 look at the containers we have because and and actually look at it and maybe ask yourself the question how would you go about designing that in css um people don't give css enough credit um uh, or how how hard it can be when you're trying to deliver something that your branding team has come up with uh, so i want to start right from there uh, but something that we're really proud of is the data model uh, me and Bo invested a lot of time in the data model 
uh, both for the pay now and the pay later businesses, especially to start them from uh, start it from scratch. You know, this is the one thing we really wanted to invest the time in because we want to feel that this data model that we have will grow with the business rather than any year's time feel like, oh, shoot, we've made some critical errors in our model. Let's, let's start again. And that's something people, business doesn't really like to hear. Um, so that's one of the other things I would say data model. We're really proud of our data model and, uh, and invested a lot of time in that. Um, and the, the third thing is, um, open banking has been quite a, I would say an interesting challenge to solve, um, because, um, can we go a little bit more into like, I guess, open banking? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Let's, because, because that was actually the next question I was about to ask about open bank. Yeah, I think, so you have to remember that we are a UK and a US business and, um, you know, uh, open banking is basically, uh, it basically allows businesses to access, um, consumer or, uh, business data so that those, um, businesses can make a decision whether it's giving you a better loan uh, or whether it's giving you, uh, uh, you know, a discount on a product, whatever it may be, they can collect this data. It's a read-only um, stream, so that, for example, you've heard of Monzo, you can uh, you can give me access to your Monzo, and I can then, based off of your data, deduce whether I I want to, you know, uh, give you a specific product uh, a product offering. So that's, I guess, at the top level, what open banking does. It kind of opens out um, the ability for businesses to provide exciting products or whatever it may be, uh, or even uh, give you services like uh, an idea of how much you're spending on things that you might not want to spend, right? So it really opens up a, a great host of possibilities. And it's been around in the UK for a while. It's, it's it, the, the standard's been set and um, it, it, it it's really straightforward to implement here in the UK, but if you if you talk about open banking in the US, sometimes it can be the Wild West. Um, so when we are thinking about implementing open banking, we can't just pick, hey, listen, I want to implement this for a specific bank, because as a business, our customers are not just going to be, uh, you know, not just going to have a, a Chase bank account or a NatWest bank account. Right, they we might have twenty customers all with twenty different bank accounts. So at this point, we have to really look at what options are out there for us to integrate with in order in order to provide our customers, I guess, the best experience for uh, for connecting their banking accounts. Um, so again, going back to being a UK and a US business, uh, there are some fantastic UK providers, but they don't exist in the US. Uh, so that can create a problem in terms of uh, the engineering side, right? Because then you're like, okay, are we going to implement something just for the UK and then have something else for the US? Now you're putting the cognitive load on me as an engineer and like, oh my God, I'm going to have to integrate, first of all, two different services. And then depending on whether my U user is a U UK or a US user, I'm going to have to then implement that differently in my data model. It's just, it, it can get scary, right? So... Um, that is why we decided to go with a, a platform called Plaid, which is available both here in the UK and US and has a great coverage across across both sides of the, the pond. Um, and that is uh, basically the best way for us to provide our customers uh, with the ability to connect their banking accounts. So 
just coming back a little bit, step back. So about open banking itself, what kind of, as we speak about open banking, you can receive the data and not about your bank. What kind of data can you get via open banking and how do you use it? So, so are the, is, is there any specific part of the data that you are interested in much more in? Is there any part that you don't use that much and you are still able to use it? It's a great question. Um, it's uh, basically a statement of your spendings in, in, in the most basic way, if you want to think about it. It's the same thing that you might be able to see if you open up your uh, banking app and you see all of the list of items that you've literally spent the money on. Um, what the uh, what we would be getting is a similar kind of data, but with attributes attached to it. For example, if you bought something at um, a Pret, a coffee, then it would be labeled as a specific category. If you um, you know ate some food, it might be a different category. If you purchased um, a suit, it might be a different category, right? So. Um, so we get a lot more attributes and metadata alongside getting the individual payments and and what you basically the payment amounts etc. And then what we can do is we would be able to take that into our data model, ingest all of that data, and then um, figure out whether or not um, you're a worthy person to lend to, uh, because we'd get your balances as well, of course, right? So we'll know how much money you have in your account, how much outgoing you have every month, and if I can see, and this is obviously talking on a consumer level. Uh, but this also applies to the business side as well. Um, you know, if I can have a look at your data and see that you have ten thousand pounds incoming every month, and you spend nine thousand um, pounds every month, you know, we can then make certain uh, judgments around your spending behavior, and then offer you products based on that. And from the point of view of the of the metadata that you said that is associated, let's say, with the state uh, with the statements and the elements the rows within the statement is are, are those categories are they coming straight from the bank as data or is it the third uh, is it the third party and the provider that kind of attaches them into the data itself that's a great question again um so um plaid helps us categorize these things and so that you can uh, you know you, you you can then have just set, get me the category where you spend all the money on your food get a list of that I can so that's that's where plaid really comes in its own and and really makes our lives easier and if you would be to integrate for example yourself with all those different types of banks what do you think would be the biggest differences are there any differences within the data model that the banks provide and how strong the open banking is in terms of applying rigor into how the data looks like that you receive i think the standard here in the uk is is pretty good um, so using uh, or, or or trying to do that individually, I don't recommend to anyone. Um, there are fantastic platforms out there that help you do this and really take away that risk of doing that because you not only have to, you, not only do you have the risk, but you also have to have compliance around that as well. So don't forget, it's not just that, hey, I'm an engineer, I want to connect with the Monzo, can I just do it? No. There are layers and layers of complexity, not just on the engineering side, but on the compliance side that you have to deal with as well, which a lot of these third-party applications really take away from your hands and make it a lot easier for you to do. Um, not to say that you don't need to have compliance on your side. You, of course, need that. Um, but the, uh, going back to your question, the UK is a much mature, mar a more mature market on the open, open banking side of things, so I would feel much more comfortable um, in, in the UK. Some US banks don't really provide then we have an api so how are you doing that are you screen scraping 
I know companies that have done that in the past in the US. So that really, it can get a really dodgy territory. And then imagine your screenscape scraping and then one day the HTML changes because they've added one more thing. Oh my God, I'm going to have to go back, redo that, figure out whether they've done any other changes as well. So it can get really complicated really quickly. And do you think that those banks that are kind of, or not providing the APIs or just creating a lot of issues and very outdated, you know, kind of ways of getting data from them. Do you think that they have any incentive to start working on that and provide those APIs and kind of go through that technological, well, not even innovation, it's more of a catch up. I'm probably not the right person to answer that, but I can tell you that in the UK, the standard has been set since 2017 and, and has been complied by most of the UK banks. And it's fantastic to see, make, makes it easier for, uh, for uh, fintechs to actually do what they're doing and, and, and build amazing products, right? Um, whereas the US, the standard is still being set. Uh, there isn't anything finalized. So when that does happen, I'm sure everyone will have to comply to that. Uh, but at the moment, it isn't, isn't there yet. And from the point of view of, let's speak a little bit about security, because obviously you work with, with financial data. Um, what kind of um, uh, security measure do you take on the side of Tranche within both your infrastructure and the way that you work? to protect the user data and to make sure that everything is compliant? Yeah, it's, again, fantastic question. At a high level, we are a, a product for a specific type of consumer, right? So we've got a, there's data involved. And whenever there's data involved, it, there's always a risk. Uh, so for us, everything is encrypted at tra in transit and at rest. Um, and fortunately, the infrastructure provider that we have helps us do, takes a lot of the load off in that sense. Um, the one thing that I will mention is we take additional steps and use, um, you know, encryption standard to encrypt the open banking data that we get, uh, so that, you know, we're not just willy nilly, um, exposing that information. Uh, and again, um, fortunately node has a crypto module baked in, which really helps us build the encryption, um, bake it in really. Um, so yeah, that's, they're the couple of things that I'll, I'll mention. And could you speak a little bit more about the crypto part of the node? At which point do you encrypt the data? Do you encrypt it at the point when you receive it straight from the provider before you save it in the database? And what is the kind of the data flow and at which point it is encrypted and at which point it kind of, it is not anymore to present. It to so me? as soon as we get the data ba uh, back from Plaid, we encrypt it and then we store it in the database. So of course, um, the database is at rest, uh, encrypted as well. So there's like a double layer on that. Uh, but even if let's say I was to leave my laptop open, which I'm not going to do, uh, don't worry, but, um, you know, it, with, with that specific database row, uh, on my screen, people are not going to be able to do anything with it. Um, so we, uh, we do encrypt it, uh, before storing it. And then every time, uh, we have to access that information, we would then have to decrypt that as well. Absolutely. And so you'll be surprised how many people leave unlocked laptops on the tables and co-workings and other places. It's incredible. <laughs> so obviously, uh, as your business model, you allow your users to pay back for a larger payment and to split it into different parts. So I was wondering, how do you deal with deferred payments? And how do you deal with people that say not paying back? You should have had Philip on this call. Uh, you've got the wrong, wrong person on the call. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, listen. Uh, you know, in an ideal world, this situation wouldn't happen. But like you mentioned, the business like ours has to deal with this at some point. 
uh, and we're fortunate enough that our team has processes in place to deal with companies who may want to defer payments. So yeah, that's that. That's what I'm going to mention about that. Um, so tell me a little bit about your team and how do you work together? And do you have any lessons of uh, lessons about the ways that you work that worked for you and anything that they work for you? And I was curious: do you work remotely? Do you work hybrid? Do you or are you maybe every day in the office? Yeah, um, we started out every day in the office when it was just me uh, and Philip and Bo. Um, the three of us were in the office. Um, four days a week, actually. Um, as the team grew, we are now uh, four engineers. We're hiring a fifth one. Uh, but even uh, a few months ago, we were five engineers as well. Uh, we um, expanded that to two working days from home. So we decided that um, the Wednesdays and the Fridays would be work from home. Um, the Fridays always work from home for us, but uh, the Wednesday is a little bit more flexible. So if the team is like, hey, listen, let's work from home Thursday, we'd all work from home Thursday. So there's some flexibility on that second work from home day. Um, so technically, you can call us a hybrid uh, model, uh, but we focus very much on being in-house. We're, we're in person three days a week, and uh, all of us really believe that is the best way to um, to grow a, a very early stage startup. You think that this would be more important for companies that work within the fintech area, specifically, or is it just more in general? I don't. I, I, I don't think the, the 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 field really matters. If you're starting out, you really need to be working very closely with people, uh, whether it's on product idea, business ideas, whatever it's selling. You know, everything needs to. Be, you should be in touching distance of the person next to you uh, because um, that's how you know you can get the business moving forward quicker build the product quicker and also build a culture as well it's very important for us to all be in-house to build the relationships I think something that we've really forgotten during the pandemic is that uh, those relationships that you build when you're in person the impromptu going for some food for lunch for dinner staying later together trying to solve problems together on one computer is like everything from engineering to to social side of things culturally has been missed and uh, all of us are really aware of that and we really want to build a really good culture across the entire uh you know across the entire division so it's really important for all of us to be in house and 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 grow the business that way and you also said that you are currently hiring. And I was wondering, what position are you hiring for? How does your recruitment process look like? So how how do you assess engineers for Trench? So we are a um, we're hiring for a senior a senior engineer at the moment, a full stack senior engineer. Uh, again, for them to join us in house here in London, our offices are here in Moorgate. Uh, you know, we have a fantastic office, lots of space, um, and um, a lot of space for collaboration. Um, I don't know if I'm selling it well. Uh, but um, the the process, the interview process is is a very good one. You know, we've all been through interview processes where sometimes they've been great, sometimes they've just not been good. But lately, a lot of times, people are being given tech tests to take home and are being potentially told to spend two hours on something which really they can spend two days on or two weeks on, right? Uh, and they're being judged on that. Um, that was something we were really aware of and um, we didn't really want to give people a take-home test in an ideal scenario. Um, 
because that's just we just don't think that's fair on them to really work on something um, for a prolonged period of time. Uh, so our process is pretty straightforward. We have an intro call with someone for half an hour. Uh, we find out whether that person has any GitHub repositories where we can maybe look at some of the code that they have that they can maybe share and talk about. Uh, we look at the experience they have. Um, and if you are good with that first stage, you come in, you spend some time with me and Bo. We, um, we go on ideasai.ai. Ideas.ai is a platform that generates a, 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 an idea for you. Uh, we sit down as a group of three and... Um, and the way uh, we collaborate on this is we say, uh, we've just, uh, YC has invested some money in us and we need to build the MVP. Let's pick one of these ideas and let's whiteboard that out. How would we go about building it from product requirements? Uh, and then we take a little deeper dive on how you'd go, up, uh, go about building the infrastructure, what the front end might look like, what your data model might look like, what your, you know, your restful endpoints or graphical whatever you want to, however you you want to kind of take us on the journey and build this product that we're going to eventually make millions on and what that really gives us at an early stage we're really looking for people that we can collaborate with on a day-to-day -day basis we already said that we're in person a lot of the time so we're looking for a person who we can really reliably talk to all the time uh, and have a back and forth of course they need to be good on a technical level uh, but if we can get that on a, a on a in an exercise then that's fantastic for us. So that's the second stage. You meet Philip in the third stage. And if you're all good, it's pretty straightforward. You know, as a whole, I think the process takes maximum half a day from including that first uh, half an hour call. Um, so we've tried to really streamline it because, um, again, one of the things we try to do is if we're going to hire, we're going to make sure that we're focusing on it and get it done as quickly as possible. Um, so that we're not, the time isn't bleeding into my coding time or Bo's planning time or my mentoring time. We try and make sure that we're really hyper-focused in getting this done as quickly as possible. Yeah, and there's definitely us at the same time interviewing engineers and potential candidates for a company. It's not only very kind of, and it takes a lot of time, but also it takes a lot of energy, I found, when I was interviewing. Because you want to both present the company in the best light. You want to make sure that the candidate has an opportunity to present him or herself in the best life, at the, so in the best uh, light as well. Yeah. So this sounds absolutely like uh, the interview that you do. It sounds more like a systems design interview. Kind of absolutely. Thing. That's what that's what most people would uh, would officially technically refer to it as. Uh, we just try to make sure that it's more a collaborative environment. We don't want it to be hey, there you go. There's a pen. Go and draw something on a whiteboard for me, and ask questions. You know, it's more hey. This is a problem. Let's try and solve it together. Like, I, I, I'm always there to help, or Bo's always there to help, but let's try and make sure that we, we try and deliver an MVP of a product which looks reasonable technically. Yeah. But do you think that this is a good uh, method of also seeing how do candidates perform when they are presented with more open-ended question than, a, for example, algorithmic question where the main aim is to optimize and provide them the most performance solution? There might be just a way to do it that has been discovered that you need to remember to actually apply it you know, within, within the problem. Listen, the algorithmic questions have a, a time and place. Um, and certainly when you're hiring at certain companies, you need to weed out. When, when you have a thousand applications and you just need to weed a certain group of people out, I think that can, can, can do a job for you. Um, I'm neither for or against uh, that method. Uh, I just believe that the method that we have 
is um, going to provide us the best result because in a small stage, early small early stage startup, we of course we need someone who's hardworking and can code, but also someone who can closely work with. I was wondering, looking into the future, what is on your plate for the next around twelve to eighteen months with Trench? Do you, are you working on any new features? Are there any new technologies that you would like to use or try within Trench? What are your plans, if you can share? So. As mentioned before, we want to provide the best checkout experience for businesses so that their customers can easily, uh, you know, pay now or pay later. We want to provide the best checkout experience. Um, so that is always our overarching goal, whether it's in 12 months time or when we do our next podcast in 18 months time. I hope that I say the same thing to you. Um, so that is, uh, that's always at the top of our mind. At this particular point in time, uh, we're trying to, um, we're delivering the pay now feature for um, some of our clients where they can offer pay now to their customers on top of already offering the flexible payment uh, to their customers. Uh, so that's a pretty big piece of work. I think, um, you know, it can be daunting at times because you're building something that A, doesn't exist in your data model. Sometimes it doesn't exist. There's no UI for it. Uh, and um, you, you know, the whole team has to really get together, collaborate, and try to deliver something in a very short space of time. Again, we're running this quite lean and trying to deliver something in a, you know, in a very short space of time. So this particular feature, we try and we have a sprint uh, for this one. It isn't a two-week sprint like you would, but then that would be a revolving one. We have a, a month-long sprint. We're running really hard to try and deliver something at the end of the month. Uh, outside of that, we have a Kanban board as well, which we try and then work off continuously. But when we have um, features that we really need to focus in on, we would then kind of take a step away from uh, Kanban and, and build something specific, um, uh, in this case, like a, a board, specifically a, a sprint that we can run for four weeks and then and, and try and deliver something at the end of it. Now, I was wondering as well, kind of connected with the, with the future thinking part, um, with, with the current rise in popularity of the large language models and a lot of startups that are just jumping on the wagon and they're trying or to enrich the current functionality that they have and they're offering with large language models or they're trying to build something completely from scratch. I was wondering, are you, are you looking into utilizing any of this entrenched in the future maybe? Or what do you think about it? Excellent question. We have investigated it. It's a very early stage investigation. Again, we can't afford to... Um, spend a lot of time on it. Uh, what I will say is that in in getting financial institution data, which isn't open, it is not very easy to get a large language model to, to ingest something or come up with the result. If I was to, let's say, take your data and say, hey, is this, is Pavel going to pay me back all the money? Um, now, uh, it, it's very difficult for it to to, to build that without having uh, a lot of data to churn through prior to that. So because it's a very um, secure space and data isn't freely available, um, that's quite the challenge of making sure how do you get the right result at the end of it, right? So there's a lot of data, there's a lot of training you have to do, but in order to do the training, you've got to have the right kind of data as well. And the data isn't just, it's just not there. I think there is a little bit uh, of a, I guess a larger data data model set out there for a data set out there for the consumer side of things, uh, but on the business side of things, you know, everyone's still just exploring. And I was as the last question. So, um, 
would you would you have any advice for any founders or engineers getting into the fintech space within the next 12 months are there any any trends that you see that would be good to investigate or any obstacles that potentially can uh, create issues um it's it's economically it's quite a tough time that we're going through uh, i think everyone is aware of that uh, for founders um you've got to hire a great head of engineering uh, got to, it, it's very important uh, and uh, and to follow up from that i'll say team 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 it's very important at an early stage for founders to make sure that they have the right team uh it's just it, it's very important and then on top of that make it in person the benefits of having an in person team vastly outweigh the cost honestly um focus on delivering great products right you've got to keep that cycle short try and get something in front of your customers so that they can decide whether they want it or not you're in no position sometimes to to answer that question but your users are um and try and deliver it as soon as possible right make sure you're getting it out in front of people make sure if you're a, a non-technical founder you're selling the product before it's ready so that your um uh, your co-founder who's uh, who's a, who has an engineering background is tearing his hair out because they have to build it in a very short amount of time because you've already sold sold something a vision uh, so those are all the things that I'll, I'll kind of that's my advice i, I think for uh, people who are looking in in the space i think the last thing you said about the non non-technical founder to prepare something beforehand and sell the product before even he gets into the engineering part i think this is very good because very often I was approached by people that wanted to start something as a as a software engineer myself, and it was majority. A majority of the work would have to be done, but the non technical founder has an idea, but didn't exactly validate it beforehand. It just wants to build it straight off. Yeah, I think validation. You you, you said it right. It's key. Validation is key, and if someone is paying for something before you even have it, you know you you definitely can can say you have something uh, going for you and any advice for engineering uh, engineers within the space um yeah i think again uh, the market's been pretty tough there have been a lot of layoffs um but the but there are still lots of jobs out there um you know um you can kind of break this up into three uh, junior engineers really have to just get out there and and build some products whether it's for themselves or uh, ideas that are out there just try and build something that, so that you can showcase that when you're out going out there for interviews uh, for mid-level and uh, senior engineers I think that there are plenty of opportunities opportunities are plentiful right there are lots of job opportunities out there um, I think for mid-level engineers if you want to grow to the next level um, my advice would be to try and find something that's in person uh, because the mentorship and working with a senior engineer or, or even helping junior engineers um, is much easier. It's easily done in in an in person environment. Uh, of course, there are companies who are remote first and and have a fantastic ethos around that. DuckDuckGo being one of them, but there were uh, and GitLab, but they're you know they're a, um, a remote first company, right? A lot of companies post pandemic have turned down the route of be being remote, but really don't have processes in place to help their engineers or grow their engineers. So be selfish is what I'm going to tell the engineers. When you go and get a job, be selfish and, and make sure that you're getting the right help to grow yourself in your career. Thank you so much for your time. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much, Pavel. See you later. See you.